Hello, Merry Christmas, and welcome to the second Christmas special with Yvette Cooper, Emily Thornbury, and MP4. This is, oh man, this is absolutely worth the wait. I did think about putting them out all together, but you just think, you know, in a way, it's like a box set. It's like waiting for a new episode. And so it's absolutely worth the wait, because if you thought the first half um, was wonderful and bonkers, and of course, containing high quality political thought and analysis, then part two has even more of all those things. Um, Future shows, of course, uh, don't forget, come to the Duchess Theatre and see on the 23rd of January, Emily Maitlis and John Sopel. That has almost sold out. Uh, On the 20th of February with Keir Starmer, that has almost sold out. On the 6th of March with Eddie Izzard, tickets for that are going very, very quickly. And more guests to be announced soon. So um, always follow me on Twitter because... Um, because I put this podcast out weekly, often it's announced there first, so you can follow me on Twitter, at Matt Ford. Hopefully see you at a future show, but for now, my second Christmas gift to you is the wonderful second half of Yvette Cooper and Emily Thornbury. Uh, the jingle bell rock, and that's that! <laughs> that's before! Amazing, as always. Good ladies and gentlemen, Please welcome back our two amazing guests for tonight, Yvette Cooper and Emily Thornbury. <laughs> welcome back. MP4 will be back later in the show. Give it up now for the amazing MP4. <coughs> Cheers, fellas. Thank you very much. It'll be a big number at the end. Um, but for now, thank you very much, Ian, Kev. Greg and Pete, see you in a bit. Um, we didn't talk about the SNP actually, um, and and, <laughs> and independence. Um, do you feel like, in a way, having Keir Starmer as leader and having Labour more popular, in a way, solves Labour's issue with the union, or do you think Labour still needs to make a kind of patriotic case in Scotland? What's the what's the answer to that? I think we, we are still making a patriotic case. I think the the combination of Keir and Anas, I think, are doing a great job. Um, the obviously we saw the, um, the the commission that Gordon Brown uh, led, which was which was all about devolution everywhere um, and giving power back to communities. But I think. Um, uh, yeah, I think here in NASA have been doing a great job, and it is all about the the strength of all of the things that that we have in common, as well as the work that NASA and Scottish Labour are doing in Scotland as well. I know you have your political differences with Nicola Sturgeon, but do you, do you admire, particularly as a, a woman, to have led a country for so long, to lead a party so successfully? Are, are there things that you admire? That? I think it's been tough for anybody de- dealing with the COVID crisis and you know taking the, the pressure. Uh, on all of that, I think, I suppose the, the the problem that I have though is around the I suppose playing divisive politics again, and that's what it feels that the SNP and, and Nicola Sturgeon has still tried to do is to distract from some of the the real issues that that people face, um, you know, by by the division instead. And Emily, when, when, uh, how do you feel about uh, Scottish independence and things like that? I mean, because there are a lot of people on the left, actually, that sort of say, well, actually, this is, you know, uh, uh, you can see how people are effectively have an anti-imperialist worldview as they see it, and then other things get lumped in with that, and they say, well, you know, people who live in a particular area should make the decisions. We have a level of devolution. Why not allow Scotland to be independent if that's what the people want? I think that... I think what we've been working on is the idea of, if we do get 
the honour of an opportunity to serve the British public, that actually, instead of just kind of taking the power and keeping it to ourselves, we're actually going to give it away. And what we want to do is we want to have devolution across you know, the whole of the United Kingdom so that decisions are made closer to the people who is actually going to be affected by it. And, and actually, and rather than, for example, with Scotland, have it all hoarded in Edinburgh, you could have, you know, you could have power devolved from there too into other parts of Scotland. You know, if you go to, you know, the the, the Shetland Islands as I did um, in April, you know, you're a very long way away from Edinburgh. I mean, you do feel like, you know, people weren't flying the Scottish flag. They didn't. They felt like they were from Shetland. You know, in any argument you ever got, you know, this is our oil, you know, from from Scotland. Shetland said, well, actually, it's our oil, you know, and so it would go on. So I think that. It's, it's more complicated than it kind of looks straight away, and I think that's what Britain's about, is a series of different communities, you know, up and down with distinctive, distinctive characters, and we have far too centralised a political and economic system. We need to be able to devolve properly, but that doesn't mean cutting our, the great British country, you know, into lots of pieces and letting them kind of just all, you know, and them running off and just being independent, because we're much stronger as a country together, to coin a phrase. Um, what was doing in Shetland? I was on holiday. I've got a thing about puffins, if I'm really honest. <laughs> really? I re- do you know what? Do you remember? I, I mean, really like puffins. Do you remember the little things they used to put in the Kellogg's boxes, the, the little things of puffins in Shetland? I used to collect them. No, have you got, still got them? Uh, um, do you know what? I mean, this is... I can't believe them. You haven't got me a Christmas present yet, have you? <laughs> I got you a bottle of champagne, didn't I? Um, <laughs> I'll trade it in for the puffins. You know what? Actually, it, 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 I've never told anyone this, but... Kellogg's cornflakes in the, I would say, late 80s, early 90s, did a wildlife thing where it was, there were like little squares with a picture of puffins on, I think we'd pull the thing across and it would turn to colour. It was a pretty basic free thing in a. Right. And it was around the time that I was starting to um, lose my faith that Santa was operating alone. <laughs> and. Because <laughs> I don't want to. Um, so. I. Oh man, this is so sad. So I In case there's anybody in the audience I, who still believes in Santa. So <laughs> Well, you know what, I do a radio show and I just sort of mentioned I didn't say Santa wasn't real. I said something like, Oh, back then when I still believed in Santa and I've never had I, I got reports to Ofcom. Okay. Um, so <laughs> you do have to be careful so I'm just like I'm now like, oh god. Anyway, so what I did was one year, um, I can't believe it. I mean I believed till I was like eleven I was like a late developer and um, <laughs> I collected autographs. So what I did, I asked Santa for his autograph, and I kept it, and I thought, that looks like my mum's handwriting, but I didn't say anything. And then the next year I asked for it again, and that looked like my mum's boyfriend's handwriting. And I was like, uh-huh. uh-huh. <laughs> I said, why is Santa doing a different signature? And, so this was the thing, to bring it back to the puffins, was I'd given one to Santa as a gift. And I remember once my mum going in her bureau, and it fell out the bottom. I was like, I gave that to Santa. <laughs> but obviously... You know, no spoilers, but um, <laughs> Santa and your parents sometimes collude. So um, the puffins thing, I, I've always had a bit of a thing for because... Yeah, well, it's a great know. place to go, Shetland, <laughs> to see the puffins. It's a great place to go. So how did you get into Shetland puffins? So I just really like puffins. I just do. And but so where did that come from? I don't know. I just saw them and I liked them. <laughs> <laughs> I think I was in Iceland and, uh, and we saw puffins and I just thought, I've never seen anything so enchanting in all my life. It's like, you know, it's like where rabbits become birds. They kind of, they live in holes under the ground. They waddle around. They're, they're extraordinary little things. 
and they're do also in danger. Did they evolve from rabbits? No, 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 no. But they, but they, they remind you of rabbits in that they have burrows like rabbits do. Like, they don't have nests. They just like they burrow, and they, and they, and you, they'd set off as if to go off and fly, and you just think. You're never going to fly, mate. I mean, it's just like you're never going to. You're like they're spherical with kind of like a couple of little wings. It's like never going to happen. And they kind of they jump off the cliff and they're kind of going down and down. down thinking, yeah, it's really not going to work. And then like, the last minute they take off. They're great. They're great little things. And is there a sort of labour analogy in that? <laughs> <laughs> My husband thought there was an analogy with me, but <laughs> that's because he's mean. <laughs> But I still fly. <laughs> <laughs> Yvette, do you have a favourite um, quasi-rabbit bird animal? Oh, I feel like depression now. <laughs> <laughs> I can match the puffins. To, um, yeah, dogs and rabbits and things all feel quite tame and, and lame in, in, respond, in comparison. Yeah. Very exotic tastes you've got, Emily. I've got more. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. No, no, I'm not <laughs> going to. <laughs> What, what sort of thing? I like owls. Ooh. I'm very into owls. I guess in a way they're kind of like British puffins. No, puffins are British. Oh, God. They're on the Shetland Islands, and the Shetland Islands are part of Britain. Oh, my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. Sort of made a sort of really nationalist case on puffins. <laughs> my God. So, then, but I guess owls are more, okay, mainland puffins. No, there are, there are puffins in Northumberland. <laughs> I'm trying to build a bridge here. They're, the, they're, they're more like things you would get in your garden. Puffins, urban puffins. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no. Okay, I'm not going to make you work anymore. Okay, no. I'm going to disagree with you. <laughs> what, what is it that you like about owls? I don't know. I think they are extraordinary, aren't they? Have you ever seen an owl fly? They're completely silent. And, uh, and they just, I mean, I think that they are just, they're, they're otherworldly. I mean, they're, they're like something else. I just think they're so magnetic, kind of charismatic yeah. animals. They're wonderful. And do you have a favourite breed of owl? Snowy owls. The white ones? Mm. Is that because of the end of the snowman, where the owl flies towards... No, I'm a bit older than you. I, was, <laughs> I liked snowy owls before the, uh, before the snowman. I don't think any, I've never heard you talk about owls before. I mean, I've it, never been asked. <laughs> That's where Paxman and it all the my, others. It was my fa- so when I was in the Brownies, my favourite leader was the snowy owl as well. You see, I think the brown owl was a bit bossy, but I like the snowy owl. Okay, so it was a kind of political choice. It was an act of rebellion against the yes, it probably was matriarchy. Yeah, no, it probably was. Yeah. Mm. Um, <laughs> so then how do I then get back into politics? <laughs> well, I guess owls have a left wing and a right wing. Um, so. <laughs> Come on. I've never been groaned at so much in my own house. Oh, man. Um, so, in fact, I didn't know this until this week, and I'm not sure if it's... With Wikipedia, I'm always slightly wary. Is it true you worked for Bill Clinton? Yes. But, like, before he was president? That is correct. It was 1992... And I worked in Arkansas, in Little Rock, Arkansas. And uh, I used to have meetings in the war room at 7 o'clock in the morning and 7 o'clock in the evening. And um, I, was, 
I was used. To, I did some of the policy work around crime and around healthcare, uh, which was uh, great. Except that they had it. With they every so often they had this. Um, system where people would ring up with questions for the Bill Clinton campaign and when the questioners got just too furious and too difficult to deal with they would put them through to the people who were doing the policy and you so you would have to take your share of the calls that would come in and it was a total nightmare dealing with the um, questions around healthcare because Bill Clinton did have plans to try and reform healthcare to try and get more equality, more support for, for Americans in the healthcare. Only I would get these, you'd, I'd answer the phone and the English accent would just trigger people. And so you would get, get this, this one guy who said, you know, he's not gonna socialize medicine, is he? And you'd think, you should be so lucky. <laughs> and he couldn't say that. And so they actually, they stopped me answering the, NH- the healthcare calls in case I started talking about the NHS and how brilliant it was. I think that must have been. I mean, obviously, you're exceptionally bright. You study at Oxford and Harvard and LSE. So you're obviously going places very young in your life. But to be working for somebody who's on the brink of becoming the president, in what must have been your early 20s? Yeah, it was, it was, it was partly, I mean, I just, you know, I got on a Greyhound bus and I went down there and said, I'm here, I'll help, I'll work. And, you know, it was that sort of random the process, but it was absolutely brilliant. Because I think so many people don't realise in politics, you can just do that. You can yeah. just rock up and go, mm. I'll deliver leaflets. Yeah. You don't have to sort of turn up with all these, conne- I mean, obviously connections help and that's life, but I mean, it's... It, Always say yes. Whenever you get, I mean, if you're in politics, if you're offered something, always say yes. Just do it. I mean, who knows where it'll take you? That's what I always say to youngsters. You know, just say, just do it. Just we need. Just have a go. Yeah, just we yeah. need the enthusiasm. We need fresh blood. We need people to get out there. And you know, I mean, we don't have a lot of money in the Labour Party, but we've got lots of people, and um, and we need them. You know, we need them to help us. Well, and and all political parties need, you know, yeah, fresh but we, people. Well, we need them. <laughs> we need Can't them, we need them and we no no I mean like the Tories have given up you know trying to get fresh people in I mean they just spend money on Facebook that's what they do but we need the people you know we need the people we need the ideas you know we need we need we need the freshness we need the we need the challenge of new people uh, you mentioned Facebook what is your favourite social media oh Instagram you're not on Instagram are you no I'm not I don't no. know why you're not because really I'm on Twitter popular. and I just think ah oh. um, I'm on there now. It's nicer. To, Instagram's so much nicer. Do you manage to do all of them, though? Do you, do you seriously manage to do everything? Yeah. <laughs> I do Instagram it's first as well. Yeah. And do you run all your own accounts, would you have? I have. I do a bit of my, a bit of my Twitter and, and my staff do a bit of my Twitter. And your staff have to say, Emily, you have to take that tweet down or that instant. No, once it's up, it's up. <laughs> and what, what's your approach to social media, Yvette? Do you like it? I, I'm just, I, it's like I was, I was almost late tonight. I'm just always a bit late. I'm always a bit slow. I get halfway through doing a tweet and then I get distracted by something else and then I suddenly remember I should have tweeted about something yesterday and my Facebook posts are always about something that happened about three days ago. So I'm not great. <laughs> no, but that's probably, for your mental health, it's probably so much better yeah. to not be on social media all the time. Because it is, like, it, it, I don't know if you find this, but it, if, it feels like you're online quite a lot. I mean... How do you I don't, deal with I don't read the incoming. But how do you yeah. not? I don't. I don't I read it. I don't read it. I don't read it. I stopped reading it. I mean, there was a poll, I think, a few years ago, and uh, of, you know, who 
I don't know who was done my amnesty or something, and like who was the most abused on Twitter, and I have the you know, honour of being the second most abused woman on t- political Twitter. Um, Until after, next year. Well, you know. Got to aim for the top. No, no, but I mean, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, except Diane is like you know more abused than all of us put together. So you know, Diane Abbott is you know is black, is you know left wing, is actually like she's a woman. She presses everybody's buttons. She gets really horrible abuse. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, not and it never used to be like this. No. You think when we, we first, you know, when mm. we first started mm. doing Twitter and stuff, that that kind of nastiness, that sort of hatred and things, that has grown over time. And I remember my early, the early Twitter experience when you could still see, you know, it still come up on your phone just how many responses or tweets that you'd had and that was really exciting yeah. you know getting getting off a train being so excited that i must have you know something i'd said must have got really popular because there's a huge number of responses <laughs> and it turned out i'd managed to, in my rush to get off the train i'd managed to tweet from my pocket and most of the responses were along the lines of never heard a politician talk so much sense <laughs> <laughs> But you're right, back then it was all fun. So like, now when you see you've got loads of replies, like your heart sinks. You say, oh my God, we're buried here. Um, but why? I mean, I don't want to go into this too much, because obviously it's, it's terrible. I, well, I used to be Why do you think of, you're number two then? Why are you so... Well, because I, I was shadow foreign secretary, and I used to be really horrible to Donald Trump. No more than he deserved, but I used to say it. I used to say what I thought, and what British people used to think, and what an awful lot of other people used to think too, and there was an awful lot of kind of, you know, Trump trolls that would just go, you know. But also, you know, I'm mouthy, I'm left-wing, I'm a woman, I'm overweight, I'm 62. I mean, how much more annoying can I be? It's <laughs> <laughs> what really left at 62, as if that was like a particularly detestable But it's, like, it's all of those things, you know, it's all of those things. Why don't I shut up and go into a corner? Well, I'm not going to shut up. I'm not going into any corner. I've got a lot to say. I'm going to carry on saying it. It's also, it's organised. Yes. Yeah. It is organised, yeah. and so you can feel, you can go through phases where you become the target because there's organised, whether it's through WhatsApp groups, Facebook groups, other kinds of forums and so on, they organise the pylons. And, you know, the social media companies should be able to see it happening, they should be able to take it seriously. Yeah there's a lot more responsibility that they could show. It's amazing the sort of difference in eras, like sort of in a back room with Bill Clinton on the phone, mm. talking to like individuals, mm. someone ringing yeah. you up and having to like a one-to-one, and now just everyone can pile on everyone. Yeah. Did you meet Bill Clinton? I did. And what was he like? Well, to be honest, it was only in like a big, you know, a big event that they'd put on for all of the, you know, all of the keen staffers. And so I think I shook his hand once and then he moved on to the next person. So it was, it was pretty brief. But still, I mean, obviously, we'll go to the other stuff. But at the time, <laughs> obviously... Yeah, it was. Actually, it was, it was more exciting. Even then, even in 1992, it was really exciting to meet Hillary. And I had this little badge which said, you know, I'm backing Hillary's husband. <laughs> and that was the campaign we had at the time. That's so cool. And you also worked for John Smith. Yes. I mean, to have worked for these two titans, really, of centre-left politics um, is amazing. And many people say that John Smith is the best Prime Minister we never had. Almost certainly would have won in 1997. Who knows how history would have been different. What was he like to work for? He was lovely. He was really lovely. And he had this real wry sense of humour. And really, he was very funny, but quite understated and, and so on. And, um, yeah, he was great. And I remember actually in a taxi once, going back from an event with someone and he, from something. And he'd got... Um, 
He'd had somebody had uh, he was reading an article. There was something in the papers which said, um, "What's Labour's big idea?" And he just sat and he said, he "said Why do people keep asking? This is just it's just obvious. I want to get children out of poverty. I want to get pensioners out of poverty. That is my big idea. It is as straightforward as that." Mm. And was he, because um, he's become so mythologised. Mm. You know, some people say, oh, he was, uh, he, was, uh, he was on the right of the party, some people say he was on the left. You know, everyone tries to sort of own an element of his, of his legacy. And in a way, because of the way his personality was, it's sort of quite hard to decipher and put his place in Labour history, almost to disentangle his untimely death from actually what he was actually like when he was alive. I mean, what's your sort of view of his legacy and, and what his politics were? I think he was very much actually in the centre of the Labour Party. So, yeah, that's the left of centre, but very much in the sort of centre of the Labour Party. I think he could reach, reach across. He was very serious about economic credibility and economic responsibility. Um, you know, he had the reputation of being a Scottish bank manager before they kind of became a bit of a problem. Um, <laughs> And, and he was, you know, he was just very, very, sort of somebody you trusted and somebody who could show that sense of that warmth and compassion, but in a just very steady kind of way. And is, in a way, Keir, the heir to John Smith? I think he is drawing on very much, very similar um, sort of traditions within the party. Again, just being that, that sense of steadiness, that sense of being somebody that you can trust, somebody who's serious and somebody who's got your back, somebody who you know, actually is going to be there fighting for you, is going to be there standing up for you. Um, and in that really sort of steady, serious way, you know, um, and such a contrast to the government. And the way that John was a contrast to that 1990s, Conservative government, actually, I think it's even more of a stark contrast now mm. um, with, with the chaos, the really damaging chaos that we've got in power at the moment. Obviously, the next election could be at any point in the next two years. Um, you mentioned it earlier. That, like, the word Islington, for about 30 years, has been used in a pejorative way, usually by the Tories to the Labour Party. And obviously, it was initially Granita and Blair and Brown. And then it just sort of has lingered as a kind of idea that... Politics in Islington is uniquely disconnected from the rest of the country. You're an Islington MP. Why do you think there is that fascination with Islington? Um, well, we've had a lot of people, a lot of politicians have come from Islington. But I think, well, I think that the, if, you, if you go through Islington, you can see some really lovely Georgian squares and cappuccino bars and, you know, and, and restaurants and so on on Upper Street. If you go off the main drag and you go into some of the estates, and particularly if you go into people's homes, you realise that we are one of the poorest boroughs in Britain, but nobody kind of knows that. The poor are very poor and the rich are very rich. And, so, and there isn't a lot of people in the middle. We always say it's the very rich, the very poor and the lucky who live in Islington. Um, but they have a Labour MP because the poor in Islington vote Labour because they need to vote Labour because they need a Labour government. More than anything else, they need a Labour government. And that's what I've always thought. I've also always thought that just like people don't understand Islington, they don't necessarily understand their MP, you know, because people make assumptions about me, but actually I was brought up by a single parent on a council estate. We lived on benefits, you know. Well, I'm also a barrister. I also live in one of those nice houses, and my constituents are proud of me. You know, it's, uh, there's a mixture of people in Islington, and you can look and you can try to have kind of, you know, you can try and put, you can try and put other people down in order to try and make yourself bigger. It's what my, one of my constituents said to me today. Um, they were talking about, you know, sh 
tofu. She actually wrote to me and said, <laughs> I'm, I'm, you know, I'm of Chinese heritage, we do eat tofu, I feel upset about this. Um, you know, and uh, putting someone down in order to make yourself bigger is bullying. And she, oh, I think it's a bit of that. There's a bit of kind of like, let's have a kind of, like a, just a sort of, you know, I mean, that's what we are. You know, that's what they, they've decided in their heads. Right, let's always press the Islington button. <laughs> you know, press the Islington button, but they should come. Come and meet some... It's a great part of the world. Meet some of my, meet some of my constituents. You know, come and meet to St Luke's uh, on Christmas Day and meet some of the old people there. Like but also, tofu is good. <laughs> I mean, but it is, it is versatile. It's a good source of protein if you're looking to uh, reduce your meat intake. You know what you can get? Um, I should have said this, it's like, you can get red tofu. <laughs> it's sriracha and um, spicy tofu. It's great. Have you never tried it? You're not, not keen on it. Do people like tofu? Yeah. Not, not quite enough, was it? it just, <laughs> that wasn't the tipping point. I think I lost that one. Um, well, you can still have like, meat occasionally, but just, you know, over lunchtime, fry up some tofu, stick it in a wrap. Mm. That's what I do. I hear you. <laughs> <laughs> I had to. <laughs> I got gout. <laughs> I did. I got gout a couple of years ago. So I've been forced to kind of, you know, choke it down. But I convinced myself that tofu's nice and that's, that's important. Emily, you also have... <laughs> you also have an amazing voice. Probably the, uh, probably the best voice in global politics. Like a voice... But there is well, no one claim. in the world... <laughs> that sounds as good as you do. I mean, I don't know if that was, if you always sounded like that or whether that's something that you've perfected over time. I think it's 20 cigarettes a day. That's what it was. I think that really helped, actually. But it's not, it's the delivery as well. It's, just like, it's like music. I sound like my mum. I sound like my mum. My mum was the socialist mayor of Guildford. It didn't happen very often, but she was the Labour mayor of Guildford. And, and, when, and, and at the end of... And she was, we had a dinner to, you know, to celebrate her becoming the mayor. And so she did this speech at the, thanking us all for coming. And on behalf of the guests, I got up and thanked... Every, you know, on behalf of the guests, thank her for inviting us. And we sound the same, and we look the same, and we have the same comic timing, and we have the same voice. It was amazing to see it. We're like Tweedledum and Tweedledee, the two of us. You know, it's just <laughs> extraordinary to see it. So yeah, I got I, I got them a lot from my mum. But I mean, I know, I know like second jobs are bad, but <laughs> you could make like audio books and things like that. Like, <laughs> you, should, you should be like even just non-political <laughs> stuff. You should just read people's autobiographies for them. Really? Yeah. Hundred <laughs> percent. I mean, like honestly, you could make like millions. <laughs> Genuinely, I, you never. Uh, no one ever said, "Look, I will pay you to read this out." I have a lot to do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very busy. I get that. Oh, so that was what I was going to ask about Islington. Obviously, Islington has Labour MPs. Well, one of the Islington MPs is now independent, Jeremy Corbyn. So the next election, what's going to happen? Labour are going to have to pick a candidate to stand against him. Yeah, probably. What you, uh, and then what, who wins? I don't know. And as he said to you, have a word with Keir for us. Not your views on tofu. <laughs> what would Jeremy think of your views on tofu, eh? He'd be gutted. But it, it must be a bit... It, 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 I mean, obviously, it's, it's awkward for the party, isn't it? But it must be awkward in Islington for, like, local members. <laughs> Talking about something else? It's, it's, it's very difficult. It's very difficult to know what to do. 
Um, Jeremy's been the MP since 1983 and is greatly loved, and, um, but he's not Labour. And, you know, we also want a Labour government. More than anything else, we want a Labour government. That's what we want. That's what we need. And we have a duty to do everything we can to deliver a Labour government. I've always thought that. I continue to think that. And should we get a Labour government? Presumably, the first thing is the shadow cabinet effectively becomes the cabinet. That's, you know. So, Yvette, you would become Home Secretary. And when you think of some of the Labour Home Secretaries, the pastoral, or, you know, some of the Home Secretaries, Labour being tough on crime seems to be crucial to winning any election. So, are you going to be, like, as Home Secretary, like, lock them up, give them a bit of a whack on the way to the station, that sort of... <laughs> are we going to see a return to, like, good old-fashioned, basically right-wing Labour crime policy? Tough on crime, tough on causes of crime, you know, it, it worked. It's, it, was a good, it was a good approach. We've got to do it again. I mean, and we would do that whole mix of actually taking much stronger action on crime prevention, particularly on kids who are getting drawn into gangs. That means both the support for, for mentors in schools, in the youth services and so on, and also having a much stronger law against child criminal exploitation so that you go after the gangs who are exploiting the kids and drawing them in, grooming them into the, into the criminal exploitation and the gangs in the first place. So you do both. And it is, it is kind of significant that actually over the last few years, the last six years in particular, the number of criminals being charged has plummeted. And the charge rate has gone down to just 1 in 20 recorded mm. crimes being charged. That is worse for uh, serious sexual violence and for, um, for domestic abuse as well. And it has dropped, so it's dropped about two-thirds over the last six years. That does mean more criminals are getting away with it. That means more victims are being let down. So, yeah, a Labour government would charge more criminals, we would be very serious about getting justice for victims and making sure that the rule of law is properly respected and that we do tackle those serious crimes. And there's a whole area of law that this government has simply ignoring, and it's like 21st century crime. In fact, Kwasi Kwarteng even said that it wasn't a crime that affected ordinary people, and that's fraud. And I tell you, they do. You know, we've all had the text messages and we are not elderly relatives have had the phone calls and we've all been the victims of fraud in wherever it is. And if we're going to have, if our economy is going to flourish, we need to be confident that we can buy things online without getting defrauded, you know. But we do need to be policing in a slightly different way. We need to be prosecuting in a different way. And, you know, and it, it isn't something that the government is looking at sufficiently well. And, you know, they have themselves, in fact, um, allowed billions of pounds to be frittered away on fraud during COVID um, and have just written it off. They've just written it off, you know, as if it doesn't matter. And then, you know, the serious fraud office. You know, I mean, really, you know, they, I mean, it's very difficult to prosecute serious fraud. Of course it is. But, you know, they are just not doing it. You know, they are just not doing it at the level that they should be. They're not being sufficiently successful. We do need to look again at that. We need to be looking at the prosecution of fraud throughout the system um, because it is the number one crime. In fact, you know, we think of kind of crime being bag snatching and this sort of thing, but actually, or drugs, but actually the big money is being made in fraud these days and we are not up to the task of fighting it, and we will do something about this. And what about then, when you see, there must be part of you, if you're like, 
Shalom Secretary, Shalom Senator, we get to see like the crime stuff is cool, isn't it? So when you, do you ever think, you know, when you see that picture of Pretty Patel at like a dawn raid in a stab vest, like Home Secretary, you think, oh, I can't wait to do that. Like, get some real baddies and taser them. That sort of thing, or is that not what you think? I think yeah, kind of what, I think, I mean, the, the police, they are so overstretched. They are so, um, you know, the scale we've seen, we've got 6,000 fewer neighbourhood police. So you do want to be able to support the police, help the police um, do a serious job. I and mean, we have, we have a sort of situation where there is a huge shortage of detectives. So part of the reason the charge rate has dropped, whether that be on fraud, whether that be on domestic abuse and so on, part of the reason the charge rate has dropped, we've got this huge shortage of detectives. And, you know, we're in a country where everybody loves watching detective TV shows. It's all of our favourites. And yet the government has totally failed to have proper system in place to recruit the detectives yeah. that we need. Yeah. And that is why you've then got victims not getting justice. You know. I mean, the really, the really sort of shock, most shocking figure of all is probably today around 300 women will have been raped. Of those, about 190 cases will be reported. And of those, less than a handful, maybe about three cases, will make it to court. And then, That's the then it will take the damage. a thousand days between the offence and it coming to court, a thousand days. So of those, those few women whose cases even come to court, they have to wait a thousand days for the cases to be resolved. That's where we are. And so, yeah, it's true. The work that Emily and I and Steve Reed have been doing is about saying, yeah, every police force should have a specialist rape prosecution unit. It is, it's a specialist rape investigation unit. It's shocking, truly shocking that they don't, the work Emily's doing around rape prosecutors and specialist prosecutors and the work that Steve is doing about having accelerated court specialist rape courts is about trying to get justice for women, for people who've experienced the most awful crimes that there are and trying to get some justice and trying to make sure that rapists are caught and are sentenced for the terrible crimes that they're doing. If people think they can commit crimes and get away with it, it effectively becomes decriminalised. Well, we cannot allow that to happen. You know, the balance is tipping completely the wrong way if it hasn't already gone there. On some offences, we've got to get it back. And it's like ordinary people who are the victims of crime. You know, I mean, it's like, you know, crime is not sort of mansions being burgled. You know, it's people kind of kicking down their neighbour's door. And that is about Labour standing up for people and getting them justice. You mentioned the phrase, tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime. It's obviously like one of the great political slogans of all time. It says so much... Uh, as well as being catchy. In a way, it, 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 does that become a burden? Because it, it sums up Labour policy so well. But in a way, you're try- ideally you'd come up with another phrase, as good. But do you often try and work somebody to go, oh, like, hard on the, um, on the, the, the start point of um, bad behaviour and hard on the... Like, is, are you constantly trying to find another way of saying it? Or do you just think, oh, it's such a good phrase, we we'll just keep using yeah, it? Yeah, no, we tried. We have tried. And if you've got one, Matt, we will take it. Um, but, you know, in the end, actually, if it does encapsulate it so much, then, you know, we just keep using it again. But what's most important is that we, we get ourselves organised, that we have the policies in place in order to drive change and to drive positive change and to make sure that we have a justice system that is worthy of our country. You've gone very whispery now. Well, I, like I believe it. I believe this stuff. I no, think, yeah, this is, why we're, this is why we're in politics. I mean, the, the, you know, the slogans are fun and the slogans are important, but actually it's kind of like getting into government and changing things and changing them for the better. But, you know, 
but it's like more texture for the audiobook thing. Because it's like what you're. It's like, <laughs> any agents listening to this are going to go, she's going to do like the big stuff, and then just for a bit of dramatic tension, really kind of. You've got to give a gin. <laughs> <laughs> give a gin and she'll read anything out. It's like sort of Ron Burgundy. <laughs> oh my word. So, um, just to think about Christmas for a second, because it is a Christmas special, it was sort of established at night Christmas. Um, what are your favourite Christmas films? Do you have a favourite Christmas film? Some Like It Hot. Is that a Christmas film? I don't know, but I always watch it every Christmas, <laughs> so it counts as a Christmas film. Okay, I don't think I've ever seen it. It's Jack Lemmon and... Oh, you can't have never seen Some Like It Hot. How can you never have seen... So, uh, 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 George people in my office, they He's said they never watched you it. He's just winding you up. He has seen it. I haven't seen it. He has seen it. How old are you? 40. Seriously, you must have seen it. I haven't seen it. Has anyone else not seen it? Yeah. Yeah. Quite a lot of people. <laughs> Are they the same people who like Topher? It's a generational thing. Right, I do you like Topher to You have to watch Some Like It Hot. I w- and that's Jack Lemon, Marilyn Monroe. Curtis and Marilyn Monroe, yeah. I am aware and of that. And, and you should, because also, you know, this whole debate we've had about trans and, you know, sexuality and, you know, what, you know, binary and non-binary and all of that, it plays with all of that. And it, it's really interesting. I mean, it's like, the, what is it, 40s film, 30s film, and it just, like, goes for this. Just goes for it, just, like, in a non-embarrassed way. It's great. You can also just watch it and laugh as well. <laughs> but but, but watch, make sure you wait for the last couple of lines, because okay. that is what you then go, oh, this is a modern film. OK, so <laughs> what you're saying is Labour's policy on the Gender Recognition Act is based on... <laughs> no. Emily, I don't think this was a helpful <laughs> Sorry, line. Sorry, all right, OK, OK, OK. Maybe just clouding Some like it hot, some like... Don't just like it hot. No, seriously, like no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> the problem is I haven't seen it, so I can't. So some like it hot, but that's cool that like that's like. No, I just cool remember meeting, watching it with a couple of youngsters who, and and they were just like, this is amazing. I had no idea that okay. like people understood these issues as well as they they seem to. And yeah. is it your favourite Christmas film? Well, now that you mention it, could be a Christmas film, and obviously mm. it would be my favourite Christmas film. But do you have? Do you think in the ropes Christmas you have thing, a line. I've got to watch Miracle on Thirty Fourth <laughs> Street or Scrooged? The Nativity. Elf. Of course. The, 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 not, not the nativity, no, nativity. The one in the school. Martin Freeman. Yeah. The trilogy. Yeah, I like that. Uh, not so much the other ones, the first one. <laughs> Home Alone. Home Alone will do all Home three Alone. in the trilogy. Oh, Home man, Home Alone's yeah. great. You mentioned Elf, Will Elf. Ferrell. Yeah, Elf. And do you... Um, I, I guess this is just stuff that I do. I'm looking for reassurance that other adults do this, but in the run-up to Christmas, do you start getting in, like, special Christmas treats and, like, listening to Christmas music? Well, the excitement is it's getting the... Double copy of the Radio Times. Yes. <laughs> I haven't got it yet this year. It's really exciting. That's, that does show our age now, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, I just check it online. Guys, never seen some I still think it's really exciting getting the double issue of the Radio Times. What a varied crowd tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Anti tofu, pro Radio Times. It's all over the place. What a melting pot. Um, but you also like Doctor Who, is that right? I do like Doctor Who. Yeah. I've got a bit of catching up to do, actually. I've just, I've got, you know, like, quite a lot of the last series still to watch, so I'm a bit out of date. And do you find, because I never got into it, because I always thought it was sort of, like, deliberately not scary. I thought there was kind of, there's a sort well, of joke. Sometimes it is scary, but it's also, it's just, it's just fabulous. It's just... The Weeping Angels is the most scary yeah, thing I've yeah, ever seen. Yeah, that was seen. scary. 
really what, what are they? terrifying. They're, they're, they're like they're stone angels that keep coming closer to you if you blink. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's terrifying. We all got the screaming heebie-jeebies when we, when we saw that. So you're into Doctor Who as well? Nah, not anymore. <laughs> Too scary. Not since David Tennant. It's too scary. <laughs> but we had a female doctor. Yeah, fabulous. So, I mean, obviously, we've never had a female leader of the Labour Party. It was like Doctor Who was ahead of. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, you can't really fault both of us for trying. <laughs> you did both try. That's true. Um, Margaret yeah, Beckett, okay. Labour's never elected a leader. That's true. Margaret Beckett was in Trimley. Harriet Harman was also in Trimley a bit twice. Um, but yes, Labour's never yet chosen a, a, a female leader. Um, so, in a way, sort of Jodie Whittaker is the closest thing um, th- that you've had. But um, in 20, obviously, you stood in 2015. You both stood for the Labour leadership. But in 2010, Ed stood. Is there ever a universe in which you'd have stood against each other. <laughs> no, <laughs> definitely not. That would have been just a psychodrama too far. <laughs> Imagine if it, you got down to the final two. Like the, the final debate would have been like, yeah, well, I, no, you didn't know where Argos was. I told you. I told you to go left on the third roundabout, and you know. And anyway, as for quantitative easing, actually... <laughs> But is, are there any political differences between you? Are you absolutely totally aligned? Is one more left wing or right wing? Uh, no, there are probably all sorts of things that um, we sort of disagree on or have different views on and so on. But we, to be actually, we don't, we, we don't tend to talk about politics that much at home. We, we, we're too busy arguing about Argos um, <laughs> uh, and things like that. But just because you'd sort of go mad if you did. Yes, you need time away from, well, argue about other stuff. Yeah, that's, exactly. That's the, just not argue about politics. Um, but Emily, your marriage was sort of weaponised um, by David Cameron. He would call you Lady Nuji because of your husband's title. And was that... Um, you always seem to take it in, like, good humour. It seemed like... But was that an annoying thing? What can you do? I mean, so, so I, I married somebody at bar school who was, who was kind and clever and big blue eyes and you know and we've been together for 40 years and, uh, and he's very clever and he's been very successful and he's a member of the Court of Appeal and I'm immensely proud of him and he, he was knighted many years ago um, and is a you know I'm, I'm proud of him but I'm not really a lady I mean I've never <laughs> <laughs> never really been a lady and I don't think being married to a knight of the realm is ever going to make me a lady <laughs> I mean, I've never been Mrs. Nugie, so I'm not going to be Lady Nugie. I mean, it's like, it's like he's, he's Sir Christopher Nugie, um, and I'm Emily Thornbury. But I'm the Right Honourable Emily Thornbury MP. I'm the MP for Islington, South and Finsbury, and that's the honour. That's the greatest honour I could ever have had anyway. But I mean, both Chris and I are members of the, of the Privy Council because of him being in the Court of Appeal and, and, uh, and me being in the, in the Shadow Cabinet. And so we both went along to choose the new monarch which was kind of cool. Um, Did you get much of a choice? <laughs> I have to say, I had some ideas, but nobody asked me. But, um, but what was nice was that it was like one of the few things that I've been to where we were both there on our own merits. So I've been to stuff 
you know, on wife duty, you know, judge's wife duty, and he might come to something because of something that I'm doing, you know, so I've done state banquets and he's come along as my other half and so on. But, uh, but for both of us to be there was a real honour, you know, it was a real honour for both of us to be there at the same time. We both signed the book at the same time. And of course, and the only other couple that I could think of was, was you and Ed, um, who were both in the Privy Council as well. So, yeah, that was cool. Is there part of you that thinks, I would love eventually to get a damehood so that you can properly... Uh, you could be Lady Thornbury. Lady Thornbury of Islington. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm the MP for Islington. That's kind of enough. You know, I mean, it, you know, I stand up in Parliament and I speak on behalf of the people of Islington, South and Finsbury. It is like, I cannot tell you. I mean, that's where I live. That's where I brought up my children. I represent my area. I just... And then on top of that, I'm in the shadow cabinet as well. And hopefully in the next cabinet. I don't, you know, really, I don't need the rest of the stuff. Because obviously now with, people don't take surnames and things, but then when you have children, you have to decide who gets what surname. So mm. your children, two have Cooper, one have Bulls. No. <laughs> well, <laughs> that wasn't even meant. Two Bulls, one Cooper. No, hang on. All... No, I, I, I'd have always wanted them to be called Cooper because I figure, you know, to have a bit of balance in this. And, um, you know, I guess I had sort of... It was an easier argument to win in our household. <laughs> but it was also, you know, look, when you've just given birth, you win any argument that you want. <laughs> That's so interesting because I had the other way around. So I felt as though, though, you know, these babies are like an, you know, extension of my body. They've come out. Here it is. It's like... And he kind of seems to show some interest. It seems to be rather sweet. Because clearly it was everything to do with me. And when he said, can they have my surname? I went, yeah, all right, whatever. That didn't cross my mind. But men always say that. They always say that. And why, you know, why should they always win the argument? I agree with you. The other thing... I wasn't thinking straight. I've been in labour a long time. I just wasn't thinking straight. We also had this great thing, which is some advice, actually, that Ruth Kelly gave me which I did stick to, which her advice was, for the first month, new mums shouldn't change a single nappy. Just let dads do it all, because they need something to do, to be part of. <laughs> so I did get Ed to change the nappy, even at three in the morning, he did change the nappies. Uh, after that point, it got to the point though, it was just so much effort to wake him up in the middle <laughs> of the night. <laughs> But eventually he won and I gave up and I just got up in the middle of the night and changed the nappies after all. Mm. Is, there, is there pressure being in a political marriage? Because every relationship has its tensions and things. Is there the extra pressure of like, not that you ever would split up, but is that danger of like, oh man, we can't then split up having been the first married couple at the cabinet? Are you like, we've basically locked in now for better or for worse? <laughs> Just, just too much hassle with the headlines. No, just, yeah. <laughs> it would be, in a way, the country would be... It would be like a royal divorce if you and Ed got ever split up. I think that's probably elevating it a little bit, actually, Matt. I don't think, no. But he's done strictly, hasn't he? Like, you're in the shadow cabinet, yeah. like you are. Like, do you feel like... I mean, both of you, do you feel like national treasures? No. No. No, but don't you think really kind of you, Matt, but no. <laughs> I think but you must feel that you have a, like a level of stature and respect from the public. No. 
Well, as I said, that's the second most trolled post on the internet. <laughs> but you don't know, see so the good part. I, I, I hope, in a way, and I hope all politicians feel this, that you, that you do, and not just in the constituents that you help, but you get the sense that the country has a level of respect for you. For all the, for all the negative stuff on social media, you're two immensely respected individuals that are like serious figures who people like having around. It's always there. I think it's just, you know, look, in the end, the, the whole point about politics is that you are, you know, you're representing people. It is public service and, uh, you know, and that is a great leveller. We had, I remember the, um, so actually it was just after the end of the 2015 leadership election. So I felt like I'd been in the papers a lot. I'd been on telly a lot and so on. And it was before Ed did Strictly as well. And the, um, we were on the tube, and this guy, you know, who came come up to us both, and he was waving his phone at me. And I thought, oh, he wants a selfie, you know, it'd be fine. And then, no, no, he gave me his phone, asked me to take a photograph of him with Ed. <laughs> and then he said, as we got off the tube, he said, anyway, good luck, Harriet, you're doing a great job. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Isn't then Miliband cruel? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. Um, well, we're almost reaching the end where we're going to bring back MP4 for our big finale. But, uh, as always, we get to take a couple of audience questions. So, uh, I'll take a couple, and if we could indicate clearly, and if we can ask for one-sentence questions and one-sentence answers, we'll get round a few. So, let's see. Yes, right at the back there. Yeah? Oh, yeah. I'll repeat the question for the podcast, but yeah. Okay, so your issues with the Tories, how much of it is ideological, how much of it is about incompetence? I think there is a values divide, um, and I think that has driven the approach that they've taken over 12 years. We've had 12 years of deeply damaging government, both in terms of our public services and economic growth, but I think at its heart is that actually they don't believe in, in active government to, to help people, to improve people's lives, and they've been indifferent to widening inequality. And I would say that those are two really important value differences. It's why they had the scale of austerity in um, those early years, the shrinking of our public services, and the shrugging of shoulders about it as well. And it's also why they've still not done enough to, to tackle growth, to invest in our future, to, to properly think about our kids' future. So I think there are values differences that have then also led them to a scale of incompetence and a scale of chaos as well. I would say, think about vaccine rollout, right? I'll give them vaccine rollout. I want to be generous. What else have they done in the last 12 years? If, you know, what can they say? Oh, um, we've had 12 years of power in Britain, what have they done that's been a positive thing? So, yeah, I think they don't have the sort of values that mean that they actually want to change things for the better. I think that that's not what they're really about. I really don't think that. And I think that they're incompetent anyway, even if they did. Okay, bit of both. Yeah. <laughs> and one more question. It's all, uh, oh yes, the woman there. <laughs> Great question. Or any party, if you had to physically fight, this is the best start to any question ever. No. If you had to physically fight, any Tory or Lib Dem? Yeah, which would it be? Who would it be? <laughs> great, great, great. I'm going to end every show with that. <laughs> think, think, what's your name? 
Sarah, thank you so much. That's... Um, why have I never thought of that? Yeah, who's want to beat up? I don't want to beat up anybody. I don't want to beat up anybody. I okay. don't. I don't. I don't. I'll tell them. <laughs> I don't okay. them. Okay, would you like to have a go at them? Oh, I like having a go at all of them. I mean, particularly the nasty ones. I like having a go at them. I like telling them how it is. I like telling them what they're doing wrong and what they should be doing. I like doing that. I don't have to hit them. Okay, who's, who's the chief nasty one? Who do you think comes to mind? Straight off. Yeah. I think Rishi Sunak. <laughs> go for him. I mean, really, because, you know, he's trying to put himself forward as the pleasant face of the Conservative Party, but they have no idea of what it is they're doing, and they are just wasting time. They won't solve any of the strikes. They don't have any vision. You know, and in the meantime, the country is just sliding downwards. So, no, I have no time for him. OK, so you want to kick Rishi Sunak in the I balls? I don't want to kick Yvette. him. <laughs> I want to tell him. Yvette, which opposition politician, opponent, do you want to forcibly pin down and taser? <laughs> <laughs> this is really escalated, sorry. <laughs> it has, doesn't it? I think, look, uh, Emily's right. At the end, this is about, it's about the... It's the words you want to throw at people. Yes. Um, and... Um, <laughs> Uh, it does actually come back you do end up it comes down to the Prime Ministers because you know there are obviously there are people like Jacob Rees-Mogg you have huge strong disagreements with and so on but in the end it's the Prime Ministers that take the decisions it's the Prime Ministers that put people in power it's Rishi Sunak's decision to reappoint Suella Braverman six days after she breached security Deputy Prime Minister Deputy Prime Minister and Dominic Raab despite allegations against him Gavin Williamson appointed yeah. Gavin Williamson, you know, even just despite the huge damage he'd done to our kids' education, never mind anything else. So ultimately, it's the prime ministers that have got to take the final responsibility for things. And, right. you know, when it feels we have had 12 years of just the country just going backwards and they've got no plan, they've got no serious vision to make our country better and actually you know i still we are an amazing country and britain has so much potential there are so many things that a labor government could do just as a labor government did in the past we could do all of that again there's so many things we could do pulling people together improving our public services stronger economy all of those things we could do them britain can be better than this that's right 12 wasted years years. so what you're saying is the kind of at one point, there was a sort of royal rumble going on there. We had like Rob and Braverman and, and Sunak, maybe sort of weapons involved. Um, a sort of almost a torture element, which was uh, implied, I think, in the, um, in, in, in the diplomacy. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, um, before we go tonight, please welcome back the amazing MP4! <laughs> Mr. Kevin Brennan! Mr. Greg Knight! Sir Greg Knight, sorry. Ian Corsi! And Pete Wishart. Well, MP4, get ready. And we're all going to have a big song, uh, sing song, and all join in. Um, uh, but, ladies and gentlemen, uh, before we go, please thank everyone here at the Duchess Theatre and at Avalon for making tonight possible. All of you for being such a phenomenal audience. The amazing MP4, the phenomenal Yvette Cooper and Emily Thornbury. And here to play us all out with the best Christmas song of all time, it's MP4! My God, what a night. I didn't want it to end. In fact, it's one of the few times I've completely lost track of time was in that second half. I, I just, that second half ran about 20 minutes longer because I was just completely engrossed. 
Um, and two just absolutely phenomenal guests. And you can see why both of them have been talked about as uh, leadership contenders. And of course, very different personalities. Um, and just so much fun spending time with them together. It was just such a great laugh. Uh, but you get the sense now from Labour figures, you can feel it. And it was the same with Rachel Reeves. They know they're on the brink of government. And that gives them an energy and a clarity that I think Labour politicians haven't had for a while. It's basically just it's so motivating them for them to know that they're back in the game. Um, and it just you can just see it just raises the quality of all the things they're saying and the urgency with which they're saying it. They can sense now they're on the brink. So it's a very interesting and, and fascinating time for Labour people, because as long as this show has run, really, Labour haven't realistically stood a chance of winning a general election. And that that tells its own story. But I hope you're having a good Christmas in whatever way you keep it. I hope the festive period has not been too stressful for you. I know it can be for a number of reasons, um, but I hope you've managed to stay warm treat yourself um, and that you're looking forward to the new year with uh, positivity and uh, whoever you support, whatever your politics, I hope you have a, a wonderful, prosperous, healthy and happy new year. And I will see you at the 23rd, on the 23rd at the Duchess Theatre um, when the live shows resume. So thank you so much for downloading this. Merry Christmas, happy new year, and I'll see you soon. Ta-ra. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at. Like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824.